Please pray with me if you would. Guiding God, send your Holy Spirit upon the reading of your word, that it may serve to show us the path of life and lead us into your presence. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the scripture reading for this morning, this third Sunday in the Easter season, comes from the Gospel of Luke. The text is Luke 24, 36 through 48. Listen now for God's word to us this morning. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The disciples were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Jesus said to them, Why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the questions people ask of me time and again goes something like this. Is it okay to be a Christian? and have doubts? Is it unusual, even alarming, for a person who confesses faith to wrestle with disbelief? For if I am honest, many a person has said to me, I wonder. I wonder sometimes if God is real. I wonder if God truly rules over things. And I wonder if God rules over all things, why there is so much evil in the world. I wonder when I listen for God's word and scripture or sense the movement of the Holy Spirit, is that really God speaking or the Spirit moving or is it just me? I wonder if Jesus Christ really was divine. I wonder if he really rose from the dead. I wonder if he is truly at work today. I wonder why so many people who call themselves Christians seem to have such different views than I do on major social and political issues. Though I'm drawn to Christ and his teaching, though I even claim Christ as my Lord and Savior, I wonder. People tell me I have faith and I have doubt. I have belief in me and I have disbelief. So what does that make me? Am I a Christian or am I something else if I wonder? Many a high school student has asked me this kind of question in confirmation. Many an adult has asked me this kind of question during an inquirer's class where people are considering membership. I've had people ask me questions like this when they are considering an invitation to serve as a deacon or an elder, or even if they're considering becoming 
a pastor. I remember at a church board meeting one night some 20 years ago hearing a ruling elder articulate these kinds of questions. It was during this elder's opening devotional that began that particular evening session meeting, and he shared a candid mix of faith and doubt, belief and disbelief. And then he raised the question, you know, I wonder sometimes if I'm supposed to be a ruling elder when I wonder like this. But the other elders expressed gratitude for his honesty. And after the meeting, many confided to him, I wonder too. Doubt, wonder, even disbelief. You see it not only in contemporary Christian disciples or those considering the journey of discipleship. You see it in each of the four gospel accounts as we read of the disciples encountering the risen Christ and what happens next. In the final chapter of Mark's gospel, three women see an empty tomb and hear a heavenly stranger proclaim Christ is risen. Are the women gripped with confident conviction? No, they are afraid. They are amazed. They flee the scene, and then Mark's gospel ends. That's the final portrait of discipleship in Mark, followers full of fear and wonder. In John's gospel, the portrait of the doubting disciple is given for us in Thomas. According to the fourth gospel, when the other disciples tell Thomas they had seen the risen Lord, Thomas is full of disbelief, even as his friends give him firsthand eyewitness accounts of having seen the risen Lord, still Thomas is full of disbelief. In Matthew's gospel, it ends with the risen Christ appearing to the 11 disciples on a mountain. And after the disciples see him face to face, we read that they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now that phrase that they worshiped him, but some doubted can be translated differently. It can be translated, they worshiped and doubted. They worshiped and doubted. That would amplify even further the notion that doubt is an implicit part of post-resurrection faith. Well, then in today's passage, we get to Luke's account of what post-resurrection discipleship looks like. And as with the other three gospels, the disciples are full of wonder and disbelief. The risen Jesus, we read, stands among his disciples and says, peace be with you. And the disciples are not filled with confidence and certainty. They are terrified. Jesus asks them, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, the original Greek word that's translated here as doubt is dialogismos, from which we get the English word dialogue. It's the word that shows up earlier in Luke's gospel to describe the disciples as they are arguing or debating or dialoguing as to which of them is the greatest. Jesus is asking the disciples here, why the internal dialogue in each of you as to whether or not I am real? Look at my hands and feet, touch me and see. But even after the disciples touch him in their joy, we read they still were disbelieving and wondering. They still had an internal dialogue or dialogismos between faith and doubt. 
Is it strange? People ask me that a follower of Christ should find themselves with doubts and disbelief. Well, according to Scripture, not at all. The earliest Christians had the risen Christ standing before them, and they doubted. The earliest Christians touched him, and they still wrestled with disbelief. So if the first followers of Jesus encountered doubt and disbelief, doesn't it stand to reason that we would? For we can't see Jesus face to face the way they did. We can't touch him as they did. We simply have his presence with us by the power of that invisible Holy Spirit. Discipleship, as we see it portrayed in Scripture, is not about certainty or having all the answers. It isn't about having all of our doubts finally and forever quelled. Sometimes we wish it was, but it is not. Discipleship is Simply as the word discipleship denotes being students of a teacher, followers of a leader, apprentices to a master. And the closer you get to mastering Christian discipleship, if you consider faith a discipline to be mastered, then the further along you progress in the journey, the more you're aware of just how much mystery there is in this discipline of following Jesus. For Christians, the journey of faith is not about finding some pillar of certitude. It's about stepping out in faith and daring to persevere as that move brings you headlong into mystery. Some of you know that I spent some years working as an auto mechanic. And during that time, I earned the title of ASE Certified Master Diagnostic Technician. Sounds like I really know what I'm doing or really knew what I was doing, doesn't it? Sounds really impressive, especially with that word master. Well, I came to believe that the title master really means you're just finally aware of all that you just don't know. And the mechanics who worked with me could certainly attest to the fact that there was so much I didn't know. If you could call me a master, and I still think that was quite a stretch, it was primarily mastering the fact that I had a whole lot to learn. And the best mechanics, those who were masters and had years of experience behind them, were also the most curious, the most open to learning, the most intrigued by all there was still to learn about cars for them. There is an embrace of mystery that often comes with mastery. When I was growing up, the rock drummer who I would often hear described as the master was Neil Peart. He was the drummer of the rock band Rush, and with that band's complex and frequently changing time signatures, with the virtuoso playing the music frequently demanded, and with the songs that could stretch to 20 minutes or more, Neil Peart's incredible performances marked him as a drummer without peer. But in the 1990s, having mastered the instrument decades before, Pert started taking drum lessons from a brand new teacher, a jazz drummer. Why take lessons when so many consider you the master? Well, Neil Pert was asked this question directly, and here was the answer he gave. He said, after 40, 45 years of playing, I wanted to push myself and open up this whole new frontier. Well, that, friends, 
is a master, one who knows enough to know all that he does not know and is part of an ongoing journey of learning and exploration. So many disciplines are like this. You get deeper into them and you're confronted with the overwhelming amount of terrain you have not yet explored. And it can be overwhelming, but it can also help you appreciate all there is, the richness of a particular discipline. Take anti-racism, an important discipline that has thankfully risen in recent years to greater prominence in national interests, thanks in large part to the Black Lives Matter movement. The art of identifying, addressing, and dismantling racism, not just in terms of individual prejudice, but systems and policies and practices. This lens can allow you to see all kinds of things that be engaged in change you might not have seen before or addressed before. The killing of George Floyd last year, the killing of 13-year-old Adam Toledo last month, and the beating of 21-year-old Christopher Ballou in Altadena a few years ago. They're no longer isolated incidents you start to see, but part of a pattern and problem called racism. And when you start to see this force at work in not just individuals, but organizations and structures and housing policies and policing practices, you can feel like you're just starting to glimpse a few bricks in an enormous building. It can be overwhelming, showing you so much you have to learn. But the journey of following truth is often like that. The journey of learning any discipline worth learning can be like that. The journey of following Christ can be like that glimpsing a few small drops in the vast ocean that is God's love and justice unleashed in the world in Christ. If the study of cars or music can make you more aware of what you don't know, if the study of social and political forces at work in the world can confront you with the vast amount of knowledge you have yet to gain, how much more? overwhelming can it be to draw near to the stuff of God. Christ is the one in whom we believe the infinite yet invisible God was at work and still is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't we expect that following Christ might well bring us face to face with mystery and inspire not just delight and joy but wonder and doubt and disbelief and terror in the face of the infinite. So yes, often as we draw close to the risen Christ as disciples, we find not only belief in us, but disbelief too. That was the case with the believers in Luke's gospel who saw and touched the risen Christ. We immerse ourselves deeper in scripture. We engage more deeply as believers in the work of justice and mercy in the world, and we find doubts arise in us too. Does this mean we should abandon the journey of discipleship, give up, because any hope we had for certitude has been dashed? No. Look at today's passage. Look at today's text. It's in the disciples' doubting and disbelief in their unknowing that Jesus shows up for them. In their amazement and fear, he says, touch me and see. 
It's in their wondering and uncertainty that Jesus opens the minds of the disciples and he helps them understand the scriptures. He shows them what the death and resurrection of their Savior really means. As the disciples waver and wonder, Jesus draws near to them and he makes them witnesses. Embrace the mystery, friends. Stay faithful. Draw ever nearer to the one who has called and claimed you as God's own. I cannot promise you certitude or safety, but I can promise you wonders untold as you glimpse one small part of that vast ocean that is God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with one final story from Barbara Brown Taylor. She paints a portrait of what it means to glimpse one small section of a vast mystery. She reminds us such a sight can fill you with a sense of all you don't know. It can make you wonder. It can also leave you awestruck and delighted that a power beyond your understanding has reached down and touched you. Taylor writes, when I was seven, my family lived in Dublin, Ohio for a year. I shared a bedroom with my sister Katie while my baby sister Jennifer slept in a crib in her own room. As hard as I've tried to remember the floor plan of that house, I cannot do it. All I can remember is the small wooden deck that opened off my parents' second-story bedroom where I lay flat on my back the first time I saw a shower of falling stars. I didn't know then that they were called the Tears of St. Lawrence or that they returned every August. All I knew was that my father could be trusted when he told me there was something I needed to see. He told me to pull the pale blue blanket off my bed and bring it to the deck. The sky bristled with stars. After my father had folded the blanket in half, he lay down on it with his hands folded behind his head. Katie and I lay down beside him, one under each elbow. If he explained what we were looking for, I do not remember that either. All I remember is lying there beside him, looking into the sky I'd never really looked into before, at least never for so long. When I breathed in, I seemed huge to myself. I felt as much a part of the sky as a feather on a bird's belly. When I breathed out, I became so small that I feared I might vanish. When was a seven-year-old girl under the, that great weight of stars? What was a seven-year-old girl under that great weight of stars? When the first one fell, we all gasped and clutched at one another. Did you see that? I did. Where did it go? To the far side of the moon. More and more stars fell as the night deepened. Some of them made clean arcs across the sky while others disappeared before they'd gone halfway. Watching them, I gained the understanding that the planet I was lying on looked like a star from somewhere in the universe. It, too, might fall at any moment, taking me along with it. This understanding made my stomach flip even as it increased my investment in what was going on above my head. When my father woke me later, I could not believe I had fallen asleep. How do you fall asleep with whole worlds plummeting before your eyes? Our journey as believers is daring to stare up at a night sky like that. We fix our gaze on the risen Savior, the one in whom the scriptures say the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What a sight 
that Savior is. What a perplexing, terrifying, delightful, confounding, and awesome sight he is. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.